Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this episode, I sit down with actress, writer, producer, and mathlete, Rashida Jones. Rashida is someone who's always made her own luck in her career. She figured out early on that creating her own projects puts her in the driver's seat, and as a result, she's become a multi-hyphenate creator with a unique voice who's made people take notice. She gets personally involved in socially conscious projects that she believes in and isn't scared to aim high, which is probably why she's been handed the keys to one of Pixar's most beloved movie franchises, Toy Story. But most of all, I've always known her as an extremely humble person who above all just wants to do great work. I talked to her in this episode about women in entertainment, how she found her own voice, and how she had the guts to stand up for what she believes in. She wrote a great film called Celeste and Jesse Forever and had the confidence not only to attach herself as the lead, but to refuse to let the studio make it without her. That takes balls. In this episode, Rashida discusses her relationship with her iconic parents, Quincy Jones and Peggy Lipton, her uncertain transition from academia to acting, what she learned from her time on The Office and Parks and Recreation, and her Steve Carell-produced comedy, Angie Tribeca. She also shares her eye-opening and sometimes painful experiences producing Hot Girls Wanted, a documentary about the amateur porn film industry. You might want to take your kids out of the room for that one, folks. You know, being the kid of celebrities does not make you special. Going to Harvard, well, that really doesn't make you special either. But being brave enough to throw out the worst idea in a room that includes John Lasseter, standing up to rejection, and working your butt off, well, I think that does make you special. And here at Off Camera, we think Rashida is a pretty special talent. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Rashida. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm great. It's very nice to have you here. It's really nice to see you. Um, and I, I love having you on here because I love people who do a bunch of stuff. And, um, you know, you write, you act, you sing, you produce. Um, but the skill that I'm most impressed with is probably your crossword puzzle <laughs> skill. <laughs> and when we met, you were like, I remember when we met, uh, my wife and I were we would sort of race on the crossword in the LA Times and we'd race like Monday through Wednesday and then Thursday we'd sort of like conveniently forget because they got harder. Right. And then when I met you, you were just blazing through the Sunday New York Times crossword. Well, to be fair, Sunday is the same difficulty as Thursday. Friday and Saturday is really the one that's like fucked up. Because <laughs> there's no there's no like there's no theme. So if you can make it through Friday and Saturday in New York Times but that's like a big thumbs up for me. See, now I'm just feeling more dumb because <laughs> the Sunday one seems so hard to me after like one it's minute. It's big. Just... It's not hard. It's just big. Did oh, you do puzzles as a kid? In I your did. Yeah. I've always been kind of obsessed with like puzzles and like uh, Mad Libs and like Highlights magazine. It was always my thing. Like, you know, I grew up with two parents who are artists, like they're true artists. They're very fluid and... Um, and my dad definitely, ha- my my dad and my mom both have like an, like a secret academic pursuit. Like they read a ton. They're super curious. Like they both, I think, wish they went to college, like in like academic college. And oh, really? Yeah. My mom went to like junior college, and my dad went to Berkeley School of Music. But I think they both would go back to school if it was like a real option for them, you know. So I think I was probably the genetic expression of all of their like secret academic dreams because <laughs> I came out just like really into puzzles and reading and like sensible clothes and like I just was like a little adult from a very early age. Well, and we should say your mom is Peggy Lipton yes, who started like on the Mod Squad and was on Twin Peaks and actor for many, many decades and then your your dad is famous music producer Quincy Jones. Yes. Um, and, and it brings up the nature versus nurture question because um you know, any parent who has kids, and there are certain things where you're like, oh, we we put that into them. And other things where you're like, where did they get that? And, and who is this person? The older I get, the more I believe in nature. Because I am just a bigger version of my child self. And, I, like, I look at my sister, and we have the same problems. We have the same connection that we had when we were tiny, you know. And I think the nurture part is, like, can you let your kid be the best version of that? You know, right. like you can't ever, I just don't think you can change people. 
ever. When you were young, your parents may have thought like, oh my God, we've, we have a total academic bookworm on our hands. They did. That's what they thought. And the truth is like personality wise, I have tons of things that are like both of my parents, the way I deal with the world and like we have similar politics and how we see justice and relationships, all that stuff. But yeah, like I came out like ready to go to college. I, I was like all about the straight and narrow. Maybe that's my way of rebelling because my parents were artists and, you know, it's like both your parents are lawyers. And you're like, I'm going to go be a rock star or whatever. Right, you know? right. It's like my version of that. <laughs> well, how did you discover reading? And Because and, I, I, I know you love reading just from knowing you. But um, but as a kid, were you were you just in the corner with a book all the time? Or was it a social mm-hmm. crutch? Or did you just love it? I think I liked the idea that I could get lost in another world. You know, I had like a rich imagination. And like it just was like a guide to get into like another world for me. But um, I wish I read more than I do now. Like, I feel like as I get older, all the dreams of like all the books I was going to read, I feel like that guy in that Twilight Zone episode was like, yes, the library. And I'm so excited. There's nobody left on the planet. And then your glasses break, (laughs) i.e. I'm too busy. (laughs) I'm not in the library. Well, but, you know, it's interesting because from what I understand, your house growing up was sort of a a social hub for a lot of artists, right? Mm-hmm. Did your parents kind of, I mean, was it part of their plan to show you that a good life is not just work, that it's also, you know, being around a bunch of people to give you a wider view of the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it was part of their plan, but it definitely by example, I learned that. And it's, it's something I've been talking about a lot with my dad recently because he's seeing how busy I am and I'm very much his daughter in that way. My dad does a thousand things. You know, he's like travels a third of the year and he's in like the Middle East and Asia all the time. And he's got headphone company and he's opening these restaurants and he's still producing and he's managing young talent, like all this stuff. And his life is very much set up to enjoy life. Like he's a true, um, esthete and like he loves food and like traveling and languages and meeting new people. And that is a part of who I am. And when I think about like when I get upset about being too busy, yeah, I think I like fetishize sleep, but really it's like, I want that. I want more like family dinners and like, you know, great music and traveling and good food. Like that, those are the things that like I, I try to, to put more in my life of. Well, your dad's in his eighties now, right? Yeah, he's 82. And I mean, that's the true test of someone who says they love what they do, is if they're still doing it as though, you know, their life depends on it, right? Like yeah. like he's signing young artists and he's traveling and he has to love what he does. He does. And it's so funny because he'll tell you, he's got like a little party line, he'll tell you, you know, what he's up to. And it also, you're like, wait, what is it? Because there's so many things and who are those people? And a couple years ago, I went to Montreux to the jazz festival in Switzerland that he co-owned with Claude Nobbs, who, was, who started it, who now passed away. But, and he had, he presented like all of his new young artists. And I was blown away. There are insane amounts of talent and respect for like their, their past and, you know, how they got there and whatever. But I was blown away. I couldn't believe what he had put together. I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I thought, for some reason, I thought, like, he was in it. You know, he was composing, arranging, rehearsing 10 hours a day with the band, and, and it was, um, he's extraordinary. I don't know what to say. Do you think that your father, um, do you think he put a love of creation into you that, that, just, that you just sort of took on as that's the way the world should be? I do. I mean, I, I, I would say that I have six siblings, and the common thread for us when we talk about a relationship with our dad is that he knows how to go and extract the thing you love and pull it out to the forefront and then talk to you and help you and guide you towards making that your life. And that's really rare for a parent to be able to do that and have done that for the, for himself. I mean, there's a version of my life where I could have definitely just, like, crawled up into a ball and been like, <laughs> I can't take it. Because he's so iconic. I mean, that could have destroyed us. But because he's iconic plus generous, I think we're really lucky because he's shared that with us. Right. I mean, that that makes perfect sense. You would assume that a lot of kids could get crushed under the weight of 
of their parents being so famous and just to the point of where you feel like, well, what's the point? We have money and there's no way I can ever yeah, I'm never going to get there. my parents. Right. I mean, I'm, the truth is I'm probably, I probably can't. And there's something kind of nice about that because it just, it's, that, then that really makes me have to just do what I love. So, like, how am I ever going to be as accomplished as my dad? I probably won't. But, but the reason he's so accomplished is because he loves what he does and because every moment for him is like getting better, is being, being better at, at something. It's not about, um, like gaining people's respect. And also at, when he did what he did at every step, he was like the first one there. So like Michael Jackson asked the record company if my dad could produce Off the Wall and they're like, no, 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 he's too jazzy. We're not doing that. We're do we want a disco record? And he was like, too bad, I'm working with him. And they made this thing that like changed everything. Like he just kept changing things, not because he was like, oh, I'm gonna revolutionize. He just like did the things that he loved and was good at, you know? Well, that's, you have the front row seat to the best example of, of what an artist is, which is you have to be fearless, right? Because the other scenario of that is your dad could have said, well, let's not push too hard. I don't want to mess up your deal right. with the studio, and maybe I'm not ready yet. Yeah. You know, and you got to take it. I mean, do you feel that way? Do you feel like at some point you, you just have to step up and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this, whether or not people want to give it to me? Yeah, I mean that's. Am I allowed to curse? Yes, okay. please. <laughs> I mean that's that is. I have to say that that is the one of the greatest gifts that my parents has given me. They both have a very much like a fuck this attitude, which is like if it feels right to you, if it's in your heart, if it's if it's worthy, then just do it. You know, my dad. Like one of the many great pieces of advice that my dad gives me over and over again is make decisions based on love and not fear. And that's applicable all the time. When you're standing on the precipice of a decision, there is always this moment where you're like, well, but if I do this, I'm gonna like fuck with other people's feelings about me, or I, it might mess up this relationship. And that is not the place to make a decision from. You can't. I mean, that's the thing that my dad was insistent about. You don't just, you know, you're not just gonna like, just casually take something up. You have to know what you're doing. You have to always be a student, always. You, there's never the end, the end of learning. Obviously you worked really hard at school because you went to Harvard. At a certain point, if a kid's gonna go to Harvard, they're gonna have to push themselves. When did it switch from, you know, your parents motivating you to you motivating yourself? Oh, interesting. Um, I I always was self self motivated. Like I wanted, I I found like a book report or like a I don't know. You had to write a biography of yourself when I was like six or seven, and I I said I want to go to Harvard. Like I just knew I, I wanted to be a judge or a lawyer or the president. Um, and I just like I I think I I thought I knew what I wanted. And I just like stuck to it. I was I was pretty self motivated. I think I also was like I was such a good girl. I wanted to be like the best student and the best at everything, which has its downfall because you're you become very hard on yourself in a way that's like impossible to fulfill. You Why know? do you think you wanted you were the good girl? I mean, you're living in a house full of artists, and you're you're in L. A. and you're you've got a lot of examples around you of kids who are taking the easy route. I'm sure. That's how I'm built. My sister's like uh, is is like an artist. She's very like fluid, creative, like nonlinear thinking, like so unique, so different, so like opinionated, and we're we're so different in a lot of ways. But like having that in the house as like a foil, you know, I think I was like, well, I'm this, and then I'm just going to be this to like the extreme. I think that's pretty amazing, you know, um, because oftentimes if you if you look behind the kids who are the valedictorians or the ones that are, are ending up in Ivy League schools, they did have parents that really pushed them. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the good and bad thing about, like, how my personality just is, I have nothing to do with it, is, like, I'm pretty good at a lot of stuff. Like, I can, you know, I'm, I'm well-rounded. So, like, in high school, I did ever I was, you know... National Honor Society and like student government, but I was also in the play and I was in the varsity club and I was a mathlete. I was like everything. But it also, you know, for me, my challenge is like focusing and not feeling like fraudulent at everything. Because sometimes you feel like. Right. When something comes sort of easy and you're good at it, then 
you never go as deep as the person who that's the only thing in their life, right? Right. And then I, I, I look at people who are, you know, like, just like these, you know, protégés and, um, like, these incredible beings that, like, change the, you know, the molecular structure of the earth. And I, I'm, like, jealous. I, I, like, I'm not like that. That's not who I am. What I'm saying is, like, because I like to, to have a lot of different things to focus on, sometimes I, I wonder if, like, there is, like, a quantitative thing where, like, part of, you know, like, all my things suffer. Right. I was talking to a friend about what you want to accomplish in every decade of your life. And I think, like, I certainly, in my teens and my early 20s, like, just wanted to be cool. And then in my later, mid to late 20s, I wanted to be around really smart people. And in my 30s, I found myself being attracted to, like, incredibly talented people. And as I get in my later 30s, I want to be around, like, kind people is important Uh to me but I'm hoping that like my 40s into my 50s is about mastery I want to master things interesting so so to really pick something and and challenge yourself in a way that requires total focus yes Right. I don't know if that goes with your multi-hyphenated <laughs> approach. Not right life. now. Not right now. My, my 50s. I have yeah, some time. There you go. <laughs> hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Shady Rays. You know, we all wear sunglasses and we've all bought so many pairs of sunglasses over the years and we've lost them or broken them or they've gotten scratched or whatever. But for me, I hate paying so much money for sunglasses. And then I found out about Shady Rays. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company. They're not some big corporation that overcharges for sunglasses. In fact, they're here to change the whole way we think about sunglasses with high quality shades at a much lower price. The crazy thing about Shady Rays is their warranty. It's one of the best warranties in all of eyewear. They'll replace your sunglasses if they're lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens, whether you drop them in the ocean or sit on them or run over them with your skateboard or whatever, they'll replace them. And even with that strong of a warranty, they still manage to make quality that I can tell you, holding in my hand, seems just as good as any expensive pair I've ever worn. They have polarized lenses that look perfectly clear, and most Shady Rays are only $48. They also provide 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order placed, and they've provided over 10 million meals to date. And, you know, I have four or five pairs. They come in all the classic styles. They're durable, they're lightweight, they're great, and they stand behind their product. And they told off camera that if anyone has a problem, they throw profit out the window and they do what it takes to get it right. And they have free returns and exchanges. You either love the shades or Shady Rays will pay to ship them back. That's it. And exclusively for off-camera listeners, they give us the best deal they have to offer. This is a Black Friday-level deal. You can use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs at ShadyRays.com. You buy one, you get one free. That means basically you can get two pairs of sunglasses for $48. Once again, you go to ShadyRays.com, use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs. These can be redeemed only at ShadyRays.com, where you can find all their newest and best shades. Take a minute, check out ShadyRays.com. I'm sure you're going to like them. I love them. And uh, let me know what you think. Send me an email, sam at offcamera.com. All right, now back to the show. Okay, so help me with the chronology. You you were in high school when your parents were divorced, right? I was 10. You were 10, okay. And do I have this right? Did your sister go and live with your dad? My sister with my dad, yeah. Now, see, to me, that seems scary mm-hmm. that all of a sudden like you're not only not only is your household changing and the security is going away but but like your sister's going away too was it i mean what what was the thinking behind that choice and how do you think that sort of affected you my sister was a wild woman oh she was oh yeah she was like you know she was like sneaking out my sister was really cool she had a lot of, like, friends. She was, like, not that interested in school. She was more interested in her friends and her social circle. And, like, um, you know, my mom is, like, a lovely, loving hippie. And from the beginning, it was, like, my sister and her are so different that my mom was, like, oh, what do I do with you? And my dad, I think, I think she was, like, just wanted her freedom. And my dad's 
you know, I mean, it was devastating. I had a hard time with my parents' divorce. I started eating a lot, (laughs) eating my feelings. And, um, you know, it took me years to, like, really come to terms with it. Now my parents are really good friends, and we have, like, such a nice, weirdly nice nuclear family, the four of us. But, um, no, it was devastating. The whole thing was devastating. Did it make you get kind of more serious about whatever, like, oh, okay, I'm kind of on my own in some ways, and I have to think about this, I have to think about the world differently, or was it, was it just, you're too young to think that way? No, it definitely was the first time, I mean, I'd always, since I was really little, struggled with loneliness, like, I remember being really little and feeling lonely, and I think probably at 12, 13, 14 was the first time I just found, like, the most embarrassing diary entry from, like, 14, like, the lights went out, the electricity went out. And it's so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm admitting this publicly. There was, you know, like at that point, you couldn't have anything if the power went out. Like now you could be on your phone. Sure, right. There was nothing. So it was like me and my, I had like a little like C C battery powered boom box and like a candle. And I listened to Bonnie Raitt, I Can't Make You Love Me for like four hours. Like on like a single, just like over and over again. Oh my. And just like wrote, it's so sad. (laughs) And wrote. My mom was away. I think she was in Italy filming a TV show, and I just like wrote, and it was all about like the human condition and like loneliness. (laughs) But but it was probably the first time that I understood that that was like probably a a emotionally chronic thing that just exists not just for me but for everybody. But that that there's like a lot of good that could come from that. Like right. and, and you're you're sitting there and you're on your own and you're expressing yourself. That is more of an adult. Like that's more of like a leaning towards, oh, this is I'm alone in this world. Like we're all alone or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you said you wanted to be a lawyer. So I'm curious about, and, and this is not this is your life. We'll we'll get to the current stuff. But I'm sort of fascinated about just your path and and how you you maybe went off to Harvard with no plans to be an actor. And I wonder if, since your mom was acting, if it was sort of like, she does that and I'm going to go off and do something completely different. Like, because it's kind of interesting that, you know, you worked really hard, National Honor Society and everything, and and then sort of found it organically at school, right? Yeah, I did. So tell me about that. Well, it's, it sounds crazy, but the reason that I gave up on the law dream was because my sophomore year of college was uh, the OJ trial was going on and uh, we we watched the verdict and I was so appalled that he got off and there, there was like a huge I lived in like a predominantly black dorm and I had like a lot of struggles with that like racial identity when I first got to school because I picked a school based on the black community. I wanted to go, I originally wanted to go to Brown because like I wanted to join like a black sorority and like go that direction. When I got to Harvard, I tried to do that right away and I, I kind of got ousted by like a couple kids. Uh, just, oh, what do you mean? Like I, I was friends with this little posse and then one of the girls decided that I was like hitting on her boyfriend or something and it was like a high school 80s high school movie where I walked into the dining hall and they just all ignored me one day like wouldn't let me sit down or I sat down but then it was at Harvard yeah nobody talked to me so I promptly went and auditioned for some plays but then later by the way like later that girl who did that apologized to me senior year but by that point it was like wait so so you felt you had some sort of questions of where do I belong mm-hmm. even when you got there out of because kind of college is sort of where you start over and no one knows you and you sort of have a chance to re-examine that right you do I mean I it was more a continuation of what my life had been in LA because I you know yes I went to a private school and yes I grew up in Bel Air but like you know any chance we had my sister and I were like just trying to get to the hood like I think that a lot of kids do that like a lot of teenagers do that but I, was I didn't just, do that you didn't do that no <laughs> uh, I tried to get mostly to like the 711. <laughs> well, I tried to get to the 711 in the hood, <laughs> which I did several times. But and I just And what was the draw of that? Just sort of I don't know. I mean, I think it's like 
probably part of our nature. You know, like my dad grew up in the South Side of Chicago and regardless of where he's gotten to, like that's such a big part of who he is. Like right. that's just who he is. And, you know, my brother who, my half brother grew up in Sweden and then came and moved in with us. But like he also was like, you know, a professional break dancer and like, you know, was like kind of like on the streets a little bit in Stockholm. And just, that's just like, I think it's just kind of like a thing in our family, you know, like that's like hip hop was such a huge part of my childhood. And, um, you know, I, that was just like the community that I wanted to have in my life. So I, I always had like a mix of friends, even at my private school, like the seven black people that went there, like we were just all friends, you know, it was, it was like, and and it wasn't like exclusive. Like I had friends of like mixed race, and growing up in the seventies and eighties in LA, there weren't a lot of mixed race kids. It was right. like us, the Poitiers, Maya Rudolph and her brother, yeah. and the Lumets. Sydney Lumet yeah. had mixed race daughters, and we knew all of them and like hung out with all of them because I think my parents wanted us to feel comfortable, but. You know, that's like a thing that my sister and I pursued when we were teenagers, for sure. So when I went to college, I wanted that. I wanted like the black, exp- the, the black Ivy League experience. Which and you weren't so accepted. Tailored. No. Do you feel like that got shaped a little by outside forces or that you really had to like figure it out on your own, how to navigate it? Or did the world change? Well, it's all hap- the, all of that's happening. I mean, when I first started auditioning in L.A., I remember really having a hard time with like castings because I'd go in for... African American woman, and like the casting director would look at me, and that's just literally happened to me, and said, "What are you doing here?" Right. You know, and then I go in for like the girl next door, and in the '90s, like the girl next door was always blonde and always just straight up white. Right. So people would look at me and think you're too exotic or too quirky. So it really took, you know, getting a part that felt like mine, just like my voice, which was probably The Office. And that was like written for to be like a waspy Connecticut girl, you know. So it was sort of luck that it that like, you know, it made sense with my sense of humor or whatever. But but yeah, that that was a huge struggle. But the world is also changing. I read somewhere that in by 2020, 38 percent of young people in this country will be mixed race. So we can have this conversation, but like it's almost over. Tell me about when you when you started to get involved in the theatrical side of things at Harvard. Was it like you sort of found your gang a little bit? I did. Yeah, I, I truly found my gang because the first two plays I did freshman year, I did The Female Odd Couple. And then I did this other play called Love, Sex, and the IRS. And my boyfriend in that play was Mike Schur. Oh, no kidding. Freshman year. And, you know, he, we worked together in the office. He created Parks and Rec. At what point in college did you sort of just give over to it and go, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing. And I'm at this crazy Ivy League school and I'm going to come out and act. Like, was there a realization that, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to end up back in L.A. auditioning? No, I never intended to do that. I wanted to move to New York and do theater. That was, like, my dream. But it was kind of like a, it was like a triple whammy where I was doing a lot of plays at Harvard, and then I did, I did a summer program at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. And then I had a friend who left Harvard to make an indie film, and she put me in it a film that never came out. So like the I think it was like those three things were all happening like the same summer. I was like this is a possible career for me. Right. But I thought oh wow, this is like not easy, but I thought this is really fun and I can do this and I'm already working. I was already like working. I did like one job. I I was like I had one line in a mini series my senior year of college. And then I got out and I realized how fucking hard it was. All people do is say no to you all day. Right. So then, like, your goal, your goal is really clear. You just want somebody to say yes. Like, that's what you're doing. I think I was doing, like, other stuff. Like, I was interning at Mary Claire Magazine, and I was, like, I was a writer's assistant for, like, a pilot that they were shooting on MTV with, like, um, uh, like Bob Bito and, like, some other, like, hip-hop people. So I was trying to, like, do a couple things. I was taking acting class. I was trying not to just just be rejected all the time. Right. Were <laughs> you were you good at auditioning? I mean, was it something you Not originally, no. I was not. I would like break out into a sweat and um I found it really difficult and I got better as time went on. But Really? Yeah. Do you remember a, a particularly terrible experience? Oh my god, yeah. I I auditioned for Party of 5 and I had waited for an hour and a half so I like didn't even know my own name. 
and I went in and I was like in the middle of a monologue and I just like forgot where I was. And I just like stopped in the audition. I was like, I don't know you guys. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Can I start over? I'm sorry. I just was like, and what happens at that point? Do you just feel like, oh, what am I doing with my life? Or yeah, there's a lot of moments when you're auditioning that you're like, what am I? What am I doing with my life? This is it's humiliating because you're also trying to be honest and maybe a little bit vulnerable. And most people just like don't care. They're just like trying. You know, the minute you walk in a room, if somebody's going to cast you or not, you can right. tell. Also, like, that, that, that I would say is probably one of the best things about, like, this new, there's a new philosophy that's sort of emerging, which is, like, take control, take charge, you know, like, you're the, you are the architect of your own career, where when I first got out of school, it was, like, everything was very kind of separate and regimented. There was theater, there was TV, there was movies, and there was no crossover, and you had to be sort of, like, part of that chosen few to get into any of those things. I couldn't get into theater, because I didn't go to Juilliard, I didn't go to Carnegie Mellon. I didn't go to, you know, Yale. I couldn't really get into movies because I wasn't like, I don't know, I just didn't have like that movie thing. I couldn't even get into TV comedy because it was only sitcoms. You had to be a sitcom actor. So like the thing that I sort of started to focus on was like drama, TV drama. That was like its own little thing. Now you can like do whatever you want. Like if you're the if you're the lead of a TV drama, you have a better shot of like being the lead in a comedy movie or like right. Well, now there was was there a point where you got sort of frustrated with it to the point where you said, okay, I'm gonna write my own thing, create my own thing. I, no, I tried to quit before that. Well, I've really? had several serious moments like that, but there was one that was like I probably met you around that time, but. I was like 30, maybe 31, and it was right. There was some other looming acting, writing strike about to happen. And um, and I said to myself, I'm going to do a couple more auditions, and then I'm I'm going to take this, this uh, I'm going to look at this application for grad school a lot more seriously. Oh, like, really? So yeah. not even shifting to a writing thing. You were just going to, like, leave the yeah. business. Yeah. Wow. Um, I just felt like... And I'm sure a lot of actors feel this way. I just felt like, you know, I'm, like, pretty smart and pretty resourceful. It felt like a waste of time to, like, keep doing this, like, Sisyphean thing over and over again and not getting work. And then what are you doing? In the meantime, you're just you're just an out-of-work actor. It just felt like it just felt like a waste of the education that my parents paid for and right. my time and my resources. And so I thought, you know, like, maybe I was, like, trying to—I was— co-producing a movie at the time and I was also thinking about going back to school and maybe getting a degree in like public policy or law or business um, and then you know I got a break I mean that's really the only thing that brought me back was the office okay okay so so the office comes along and, and you're introduced to this whole new troop of people and when you think about the office um, there had been mockumentaries before but but very much in the cinema world not in the half-hour single-camera comedy world. So it was kind of its own it was, genre. It was a new thing. And, and like you were saying, you know, that I was having a, having a hard time finding out where I was, where, what, where my level was, what my water level was. The only the couple of things that I did get cast in up to then were kind of like the outliers in that way. Like I was cast in Freaks and Geeks and like, you know, which was kind of a drama and kind of a comedy. Like I was somewhere in the middle and the office was sort of the perfect place for it felt like the perfect place for me, you know, in that way. Are you someone that will pick out mentors in whatever situation you're in and see how they do it? Because it seemed like that's a perfect opportunity because it was being made up as it went, right? Yeah. Well, when Mike sure took that job, I remember we were living in New York, and he was like, I'm going to go write on the American version of The Office. And I was legitimately angry at him because the U.K. office had shaped so much of, like, my sense of humor and his sense of humor. And it's a perfect piece of TV. It's just perfect from, like, the, the two six-hour series and the two Christmas specials. It's, like, the most complete, perfect thing ever. It's like, what, what the fuck are you doing? Why would you ever do that? Um, and he's like, I don't know. It's crazy. And, you know, Greg is, Greg Daniels is a genius. And I think he was, like, following that mentor and trusting him. And, you know, he obviously did the right thing. But, um, but yeah, just, like, the, the way that those guys worked, I, I paid attention. Mike, Greg, Steve. Mm -hmm. Steve's... He's uh, talking about Steve Carell. Steve Carell. It, his... What he did every day on that show, like I, I'll never forget it, 
because he was so dedicated to the part. He tried something totally new and so weird on every take that was like fully honest and fully hilarious and also had like a ton of pathos. Every single take, every every single take they could have used. So would you hang around and watch when even when you weren't on camera and with him, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you learned that sort of I don't know if you call it bravery or, or um, the idea that the idea that that's your time to sort of experiment as far as you can. Like, was that something that sort of opened your eyes to, oh, there's broader boundaries than I thought? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that I ever could do what Steve does, but I, I thought to myself, I'd like to do that. I would love to do that. I was way too nervous on The Office. I mean, I barely, I, once in a while, I would, like, pipe up and improv. And by the end of this, the this season, I, I was, like, doing a much better job of that. But, you know... That yeah, it, I think I probably put it more into practice when I got to Parks because it was it felt like I was m- more involved from the ground up, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, w- once you sort of get in that um, that uh, style of comedy, it's almost like when Parks comes along, you have a blueprint for it, totally. and you can play with the form a little bit more, right? And you were on that a lot longer too. A lot longer, and like I was a. I always felt like a guest star in the office. Everybody was so nice to me, but I always felt like a guest star, you know? You I, did. I did. That's I, funny. I never felt, like, comfortable. I felt like, you know, I knew because I was, like, the the small point of a love triangle that I would eventually just, I'd have to be sacrificed, you know? Right. Like, and I, and I remember, like, that day when Ed Helms, because we came in together, and we were both, like, so freaked out when we first got there and, like, spent a ton of time together because we're like, what is going on? Like, our, it just felt like our lives were changing a little bit. And, um, and I remember when he got offered, like, a regular spot, and I was, like, I was pretty crushed. I mean, I knew it was going to happen because there was kind of emotionally nowhere else to go with my character, but I was pretty crushed. And I just thought, God, at some point I want this kind of experience, but for myself, with, like, a group of people I know I can right. make it with, you know? That'd be a good feeling to then be the only person from the office that ends up over at Parks, right? It was cool, yeah. I mean, it was it was complicated at the beginning because there was all this, like, there was all these rumors about it being a, a spinoff. And I was, like, the like Mike and Greg and I were the connective tissue, and they had to do so much explaining to, like, unravel that that you know idea right but um but yeah it was cool to to have that experience definitely helped set set a stage for me like how to do that kind of acting it's a really specific sort of like it's a little bit kind of you know free but it's also um it's it, i don't know it sits right in the middle of like broad and like verite i tried in my in my own pursuit to to come to terms with like what my my part was in that show and in in general like that it is it has been like a constant theme in my life which is like in my career like I I do play the kind of grounded character and I do what I like to try to do is think that I'm like the audience in a way that I'm like I am like a way to make people think like am I supposed to think this is fucking crazy or am I supposed to be on board like just as like a gauge, a tiny bit of like a sanity gauge, you know. Yeah. When you talk about learning that kind of acting, and then, you know, right around that time, I guess middle of Parks, uh, you 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 write and star in your own film that you created with your writing partner, Will McCormick, called Celeste and Jesse Forever. And the first thing I thought, I mean, I have a lot of questions about that whole process, but but I wonder what you learned about being an actor from writing for yourself that that never would have come up reading someone else's lines. Well, you learned. I definitely learned to uh, to accentuate my flaws. Uh huh. And there's a lot that's fun about that, and then there's a lot that's really painful about that because you're sitting across from your best friend who's like. Yeah, you do that. That's something that you do a lot. I'm like, well, I'm not that. I'm like not that egregious though. And he's like, well, you know, I mean, you have to really you have to be, know yourself. You have to saying. know yourself, and you have to be really okay with like, you know, essentially just showing the worst parts of yourself to everybody because that's what makes 
you know, character interesting, I think. I think that people respond to honesty, and I think the easiest way to get that honesty, to connect with honesty, is to have it be a part of who you are. And I should say that the film is stars you and Andy Samberg, mm-hmm. and you play a couple getting divorced who, they're best friends, but they're in different places and it doesn't quite work out. And it sort of examines a real-life relationship where the first couple breakups maybe don't take. <laughs> and, and, and it's about, you know, it's really about a more realistic version of a romantic comedy in reverse in some ways and, and, and seeing growth from going backwards. Mm-hmm. And was that sort of the time also where you were like, I'm going to write the part I want? Or, I mean, was it that simple where you were like, I'm going to take charge of this? You know, for me, it's not, I'm not, I I lose interest if there's not like a challenge and I'm not like scared of the thing that's coming up, you know. And I I looked around and I saw people were starting to write things for themselves and women were starting to write things for themselves. This was like pre-bridesmaids. I saw saw like all of my buddies from Freaks and Geeks, Jason Siegel and like Seth Rogen, all these guys were like writing movies and they were basically just playing themselves in movies and they're really funny. They were like inverting, like, you know, subverting and inverting like the rom-com structure. And I thought what Judd was doing was so cool. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to do that for like, as a woman, be great to just like have a really flawed, unlikable character who has to learn this like gigantic lesson and like maybe changes like a tiny little bit. We designed it to to kind of try to feel like a a real rom-com, like a big, you know, studio rom-com although we ended up making it for under a million dollars, that was how it was designed originally, and we sold it to, like, a studio, and it was supposed to be that way, and then it ended up... I should say it's all finger puppets. Yeah. Does that... Which is how you got around the whole budget thing. Totally. But it works. Yeah. Yeah. Indie. Very indie. Yeah. No, I mean, it is. And then you have the big scenes, like the whole the whole running to your friend's furniture store, and, and like, that's a... There's a big rom-com Run. element to yeah, that. There's yeah, there's broad stuff in there, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I read that... There was one studio that was going to take it on, but they needed a clause saying if they didn't feel you were financially viable enough, they reserve the right to cast somebody else in the role you wrote for yourself. And um, and I wonder if you felt like the underdog, but it also brings up early in our conversation, you talking about your father telling you to follow your heart and and not your fear. And you said no to that. Uh, I mean, was that a hard decision to say, oh, my God, there's the studio. They want to make my film that I wrote. And yet I'm going to turn them down because I should star in it? Or or was that an easy decision? No, it was not an easy decision because I hadn't been—I have such a weird relationship with writing. I've always secretly wanted to be a writer. So for a studio, like a big studio, to be like, we love your writing, it was really hard for, like, the codependent, people-pleasing, wanting-to-be-liked part of me to not be like— oh my God, you want to make a film that we wrote, that I wrote? Paul Rudd gave me a really good piece of advice. We were finishing up I Love You, Man, and I was going to do this other sitcom, and and Mike and Greg were going to, were offered me this holding deal to maybe do their show. And the sitcom was like starting rehearsal the next day. And he was like, are you going to see the thing that Greg and Mike do and be really upset that, you didn't, that you're not in it? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, that's, that's the thing you do. Because you have to, it has to be the thing that, like, you're going to kill yourself if, if you didn't get a chance to do it. Right. And it was such a juicy part. Like, I mean, I'm not complimenting my writing, but, like, I wrote all of my flaws for everybody to see. Like, why, I have to do that. I have to do that. Well, this is a perfect time to say that you're writing Toy Story 4. So you write this little indie film that gets made for about a million dollars, and then you're giving the keys to the most beloved franchise of all time. To so, hopefully not fuck it up. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't even understand how... That seems like jumping 10 steps somehow. And, and let me ask you this. Was that... Did that job come directly as a result of the story you created in Celeste and Jesse? Mm-hmm. And, and did John Laster, the folks at Disney, just see something in that relationship that they hadn't seen on film before that like like was it like oh that's a great that's sort of a great relationship to take and apply to Toy Story yeah I mean they're they're always looking for new ways to tell stories like they're obsessed with story and character and in such a healthy way and they look at 
independent film writers and people who are like have nothing else but story because you know they, they they can't hide behind the studio system like they just have to write a good script that a lot of times don't even get made and that's where they they look for people you know so how does that call come in it was basically like they have a list of writers that they like that they okay. read their scripts and they like them so Mary Coleman, who runs development there, she's awesome. And she read Celeste and Jesse before we made it. And she invited Will and I to come up and take a tour just to see it. And I cried when I left because it was like the most magical, beautiful place I'd ever been. And I just sat in the car and was like, I want to work here. I have to work here. I want to work here. And she called a couple years later and said, I have a project that I think you guys might be right for. Would you come up and interview? And we said, absolutely. And so we did. But is there a part of you where... You're, you're kind of not believing it as it ha- it's, as it's I happening. I still no, I still don't believe it. Sometimes I sometimes I have to uh, I have to like b- reboot and remember what I'm doing because it's like the craziest. It's it's the craziest thing ever. It's like the most sophisticated version of like writing grad school. Where like I I every day I learn something new about myself. I'm incredibly humbled. I learn from other people. You know, just to work with John and Andrew and, and Stanton and Pete Doctor and Leon Critch, like all, like all the people who started the company. Like they still have such a crystal clear vision of what's important, and they are relentless about it. Like they will not let something slip through the cracks. Like if story's not working, it's not working. You break the whole thing apart and you start over. Like they're so willing to do that, and I, and definitely no studio, other studios do that. Is it intimidating? It's intimidating, and it's also like it's breaking open so many of my um, like parameters. Just like taking it, I'm absorbing even just the basic principle of you know story and character being king and failing fast and failing often and. Uh, and being not precious with ideas, like letting ideas pass through you, realizing that you are a vessel and you are lucky when they come in and you're lucky when they go out and like you just have to keep it fluid. You can't like hold on to anything. You can't let your ego decide what the best thing is. You have to let your intuition decide, you know? Well, that's what I was going to ask. I would think that in a room like that, you know, which is a pretty heavy room of people, I could see a tendency being to where you felt you would feel like you have to assert yourself or else be sort of like found out. It was the first like the couple the first couple brain trust things that we did, I was pretty nervous. Really? <laughs> yeah, to say something, like speak up and say something and like give these like geniuses any feedback was like, what the hell do I I don't know anything, you know? Um, but now it's like what I realize is it's a, a good idea comes from a bad idea a lot of times. So, like, even just starting the conversation, and I, I have no problem throwing up big, terrible ideas. That's what I'm realizing about myself is that, like, I'm the per- I'm always the first person to throw out, like, the shittiest idea into the room. And then it, like, somebody else picks up the ball. And the most talented people, all the people we look up to, all the people I work with, everybody has bad ideas. Nobody is immune to a bad idea, you know, like, and the question is how far do you go with the bad idea and how far do you go with the good idea? Like, when I see what this, the, the talent is, like, what's the, the common thing in the talent of all the people at Pixar, it's that they know how to keep going. It's just about, you just keep going. You just take something and then you get more specific with it, more specific with it, and then it starts to build a life because you're paying attention to it. It's like watering a plant, you know? And it's the great ones that will work at their full capacity when a lot less is good enough. Totally. And that's, that actually to me is like, that's a huge lesson of being an adult. Where like I'm, I feel very lucky to know that like wherever like if I somehow had to just like move to a different country and get a different kind of job, that I could apply what I've learned, whether it's writing or acting or producing, and even if I was doing like QuickBooks or like you know I was like an I had to learn how to be like an IT or work in like brand management that I could somehow apply that like just my work ethic and the way that I communicate with other people to any job, you know? Right. So in five years, if I'm in a hotel in Singapore and the internet doesn't work... Call me. <laughs> Call me. I'll be there. I'll be on staff. a gray jumpsuit on and a <laughs> name tag. <laughs> we'll see. What What is interesting to me is, you know, when we were doing our photographs earlier, 
you mentioned you have like four full-time jobs, and you also found the time to produce a documentary um, called Hot Girls Wanted, which is about the amateur porn industry, which I would explain to our audience, but according to the statistics in the movie, they're all watching it all the time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. it's insane. The, some of the stats that come up right in the beginning of the movie, it's more people are watching amateur porn than are, wa- than are going on, like, Twitter and Instagram and mm-hmm. NFL.com and Hotels.com. Mm-hmm. More people need amateur porn than they need a hotel room, apparently. <laughs> I wanted to start out with how you got involved and what drew you to the project and also kind of what your role was um, in the film. I, I am a little bit outspoken sometimes. and really? <laughs> I am not shy. And I... Uh, I wrote this article for Glamour magazine that was sort of like my story about tweeting this thing that I tweeted a couple years ago where I was um, highly critical of like how naked everybody is publicly right now from pop stars to kind of like reality stars, whatever. And there was a ton of feedback um, to my tweets, and then there, so I wrote an article about that, and then there was a ton of feedback to the article, and the article was basically like that. There's this really uh, prevalent conflation of porn and mainstream culture right now, right? Where everything's sort of like you're a pop star, you're a porn star, and uh, I'm just like a little bored by it and annoyed by it because I feel like it's limiting women's choices in terms of like you know, what's considered um, appealing. And the backlash from that was that, you know, women said, this is sex positive. This is, you know, the continuation of, like, the women's movement. Um, For women to be free, like, you know, this is, like, the opposite of feeling subjugated and wearing a burqa or whatever it is. Like, we are allowed to do this, which is awesome. I agree. But it felt like such a one-note representation of female sexuality. And it feels like, Sexual, sexualization versus sexuality. So it feels like the women are really like the objects more than they are. It's exploitative. It's exploitative. I mean, look, not always. I'm sure there's tons of pop star women who feel really good about their sexuality and their bodies, and it's awesome. I'm more concerned with the the very young fans of these girls who just emulate them. Because right. now it's like this Instagram, Twitter, Facebook branding culture where like all these girls are doing like sexy selfies and and like they don't even know what it means and they don't know what it's making them look like and they're not connected to the actual like sexy part of that for themselves and, and they don't know the ramifications of it on themselves mm-hmm. i wondered how the filmmakers and you chose to narrow it down to what essentially is a very personal story mm-hmm. that although there's some statistics in there uh there's not it, it really doesn't focus on the statistics or on the sociological um, implications or, or the, the, the side of it where the men, why the men, you know, watch it. Or It really focused on a personal story. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder how you narrowed it down to, to have the greatest impact that that was the choice. Right. Well, so I wrote this article, and because of this article, I, I've— been asked to speak at things and be on panels and whatever to talk about my point of view. And I did this panel, the Women in the World panel in New York. And and one of the girls on my panel was this 16-year-old, really great, bright, self-possessed feminist girl who was in a documentary called Sexy Baby, which is about growing up in the digital age. And it's about this great young girl who's like doing monologues about like feeling empowered and feminism, and then she turns 14, and it's like, Facebook, selfies, sexy pictures. She just becomes obsessed with her sexuality, and it, but it's kind of peer pressure, and it's sort of like um, not true to her, and she's confused by it. So the filmmakers, Verona and Jill, made this movie, Sexy Baby, and they were at the conference, and we met, and we immediately like just liked each other, connected, have similar politics, have a similar sensitivity to the to the complications of having such politics. And they asked if I would ever want to be involved in their next project. And I said, absolutely. I think you guys are great. So they are, they come from a place of just telling p- very personal stories. Those are the kinds of filmmakers they are. Okay. I, as a producer, when I came on board, they'd already shot um, their footage. They were editing. I encouraged them to try to broaden it and create a, a tiny bit more of co- a, a cultural context. Um, 
because where I come, where I'm coming from, you know, the reason that these girls feel like this is a viable option as a thing to do it when you turn 18 and you leave high school is because culturally porn is mainstream now and it's not, it's not looked down upon. And I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but because of that, plus the lack of regulation within the industry, it's like a, it's a, it's a perfect storm for like people who are in charge of porn to exploit like these naive, excited girls who are expecting a very specific type of lifestyle when they right. get there and don't get it. You well, know? that was, that was the sort of saddest thing is that, you know, there's, it, it's so easy now to prey upon the thing that exactly that you're talking about in our popular culture of wanting to be famous and wanting to be rich without wanting to have a life built on something. And so, you know, the, the film centers around this house, which is owned by this guy who's sort of the agent manager, mm-hmm. that's sort of this brilliant businessman who knows just the right subject line on Craigslist to get these 18-year-olds to move to his house. Mm-hmm. And they're very excited. They get to pick mm-hmm. a screen name. They get to do a photo shoot. And they get to live with all these girls in a house, like a sorority. That's and right. Like and their followers and go up. And, and it's like, you know, no, is it, is it they've, they've gotten a television show or a movie? No, but they're famous. Mm-hmm. And, and it almost is as though they want that experience and they haven't thought anywhere beyond that. And right. that part was heartbreaking because that is the part about anybody that's so easy to prey on. I think the thing that's so hard about it is that it, the part of the statistic in the film is that the largest category is teen. the word teen. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest search thing in the entire porn industry. Mm-hmm. And you have someone who's 18 years old and they cannot, they cannot make really well thought out, educated decisions about this. And that becomes apparent when the main girl, Tressa, goes home to visit her mother and they have sort of a frank conversation about protection and uh, birth control, and you see how wrong this girl's information is. Mm-hmm. And she's getting none of that from the industry she's in. And and you realize these are kids. They're kids. My problem is the bottom. It's like when you're 18, you make, you make dumb choices. Let's limit the amount of dumb choices that last forever and have psychological, emotional, and physical damage. That's right. On the girls. You have this porn industry where... The typical life cycle of an amateur porn star is between one and three months. One and three months. And it, it's like, talk about accelerating the cycle of feeling used up yeah. and, and how much damage that has when you're not even old enough to make a good decision and there's no one there helping you. And, and I, I don't know. And the pot of gold at the end of that rainbow is if you decide to stay and you want to somehow you know, for, to change from, or if you somehow want to transition from amateur porn to any other type of porn, and you're not necessarily a porn star yet, you have to make these kind of slippery slope decisions. Will you do torture porn? Will you do fetish right. porn? Will you do websites like facial abuse? Will you let yourself be degraded in order to stay in this industry? Things you never even thought about before you got there six months ago. And then you have these girls having conversations where they're like, do I do this forced blow job? Do I get tortured? Because the truth is not everybody has a great day at work every day. And that's like for an 18 year old to have to make those decisions to me is just not, it's, it's not, it's not moral, but it's also doesn't seem reasonable. You know, the idea at the beginning, the promise is, do you want to go make eight twenty five an hour or do you want to go make 800 bucks to have sex on camera for three hours? Mm-hmm. And, and Which you're going to do anyway. When you're 18, you're like, yeah, I'm taking the money. Right. The scary thing as a parent was that when you go home with Tressa to her parents' house, you see the same loving parents that I see all around me with the kids at school. I mean, she's in all these activities Mm -hmm. in high school. Her mother has made scrapbooks and her father has nicknames for her and they're really close and they go out and do things together and the parents are together. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not the story that you think it's not the foster home drug abuse kid who got into stripping and then went into porn because she needed to support her drug habit and her two kids. No, it's, it's like a normal kid who's Mm -hmm. like, ah, screw it. And it makes you feel like, like, where does that come from in society that someone that, that was sort of given everything they needed 
But because it's not, it's not considered a step down. That's what I'm saying. Like when the most famous woman in the world started her career with an amateur porn tape, and we know who I'm talking about, it's impossible to tell an 18 year old girl that that is not a viable option. It's impossible. Like there's, you have no proof. You're just wrong. Because if you're that and then you marry a rapper, like that's, that's like, I could do that. I can do that. Yeah. Everybody has a different path, but there's so much of it happening now. There's so much supporting this idea that like, if you act like a porn star, if you say you're a porn star, it's like cool in music. It's, it's like, it's a thing. It's glamorous. And by the way, just to mention, ironically, the only legal difference between porn and prostitution is a camera. And so a lot of these girls, they go on castings and they go on jobs and there's a guy with a camera and he never turns it on because there's no regulation. So, oh my gosh. And think about how this country feels about prostitution. Think about how we, how we feel about it in a mainstream way and how we feel about it in like even more of like a subversive way. Like we don't have those feelings about porn anymore. Right. It's not considered this thing you shouldn't do, but it's that closely related. No, and... and they're throwing words around like feminism as a as a reason like like it's empowering to take because hey I'm going to go out and earn money and do this and and it's my body and I can do what I want and okay on a surface level maybe that's a feministic um, tenant but it's not it, when you're 18 you don't think that through to the end and you don't look at the end result or how you're being objectified or the fact that I don't think any feminist would argue that being a prostitute was a, a way to increase the, the, the power or the standing of women in the world. No, but there is, this is a very, like, this is a very prevalent argument right now, which is, like, there's a lot of, like, sex workers' rights, uh, porn workers' rights, and that's, like, the main group that's kind of attacking me because my my problem is this conflation of feminism and pornography. So it's, like, I'm I'm doing the I'm 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 making money. Like I'm I may be doing this and it might it might seem graphic and it might seem like I'm being subjugated or abused, but I'm the one making money. I'm the one who's taking home money, so therefore I am empowered, which I understand. Uh-huh. But it's that's way too broad of a definition and you're talking about an industry where 40% of porn is violent towards women. 40%. So you're going to tell me that getting slapped, forced blowjobs, spit on, that's all empowering to you because you're making money. Like I, I find that very difficult to believe, and I, I don't think that can be applied across an entire industry. That's there right. has to be rights for everybody, you know? Well, I mean, it brings up, we could talk for hours about it. As much as it ruined my life to watch the film, I think that education and is everything. And I think that what you're doing and, and getting involved in it, it's brave, especially for you. It's brave because you're going to take a lot of heat being the face of it. I think I, brave, stupid, whatever, I don't know. But, you know, I think it's a conversation that is way overdue. And my hope was to be involved with this project was just to start the conversation. Because it's like so many people watch porn, so many people pay for porn. And it's, and it's still like this weird taboo subject, you know? In, in a weird way. Like, people don't talk about it as much as they should be talking about it. And they don't talk about it in the right context. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's a very evocative, well-made film that, um, by by taking the personal approach, it really does make it hit home. And I, I think you should be proud of it. So Thanks. Thank um, you. We have to, it, don't we have to talk about Angie Tribeca? We have a- well, we have to talk about Angie Tribeca. So... <laughs> Good Lord, wait. you do too many things. So Angie Tribeca like is your to. is your new show, and you are Angie Tribeca, who mm-hmm. is a kick-ass, badass cop, who who is, uh, you know, destroys her own apartment just to work out. <laughs> just before awesome. I go to work. Before you go to work. Um, so so when you took this on, did it feel like a natural progression? Um, of, you know, from the office to Parks and Rec, because now, because before you've always been part of an ensemble, but now you're. This is you. You are Angie Tribeca. So, it, how does that? How does that feel to, to be, you know, a lead in a, in a recurring weekly television show? It's cool. I mean, you know, I kind of wanted to stop acting for a while and just write and and produce and stuff. And Steve 
and Nancy sent me the script, and they were like, we know that you don't want to act right now, but please read it. And I read it, and I was like, oh, shit, I have to do this. It's like my favorite kind of comedy. It's it's like Airplane is one of my favorite movies of all time. And just to get the shot to be able to do it and, and also, like, like what we were talking about before, where I've always played the straight guy. I've always had to, I was like the grounded character. For the shot, the opportunity to play just like big, dumb, broad, soulless jokes, just joke after joke. Like I had to do it. Right. Like I had to do it. Right. Well, I, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm thinking of the, I don't want to spoil the pilot, but I'm thinking of the, the life drawing class scene. And, uh, and yeah, right off the bat, you're just saying to people, this is a way you've never seen me before. And that's got to be kind of scary, too, right? Yeah, because I'm sure there'll be critics of the show. It is, it is, you know, it's pretty dumb, and we admit it. But I'm sure that's not, it's not everybody's taste, necessarily. But, yeah, I'm, I'm prepared for that. I've, like, that's the, me, my battle with, with criticism, and it's, it's been a long road. But I'm getting to a place where, you know. And there's this scene where there's a wordplay on... With all due respect. <laughs> and, and you know, it's a thing we always say, that all people say, and you say it right before you disrespect somebody. Right? Right? Only then. Only then. No offense. Yeah, no offense, <laughs> but I'm about to offend you. And, and you know, you, you see something like that, and you're like, okay, it's smart, and, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of places you can go from this pilot. And, you know, I think we're in a time now where something doesn't have to, like, there's room to take things a lot of places, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. We we figured it out. I mean, we're figuring it out. We did 10 episodes, and definitely by episode 7 and 8, you know, it's such a specific type of comedy, and it's not like Parks, and it's not like The Office. No. You have to be so precise. Like, you're, you're not, like, finding the joke. The joke is there. You have to nail that joke. It's visual. It's auditory. It's, like, in the makeup and the costumes and the props and the background. Like, everything has to be perfect. It's like rehearsing a play. Right. So it's, it's difficult to execute much more than I thought it was going to be. Hopefully it'll capture the, you know, like this, a tiny, tiny little fan base that like absolutely loves it. That's like all I want. Right, you know? right. You've made this transition from, oh, you get cast as the wife and girlfriend, and then you found this new troop of people with The Office, and then expanded in Parks and Recreation. And now we're watching you like take the lead in this. And, and, and then you're writing Toy Story, and you're producing documentaries. It's amazing it's what you're crazy. doing. It's amazing. I feel really lucky. Like, I feel like, you know, when you're an actor and you're just not getting job after job after job, you have this, like, revenge fantasy. You're like, one day, like, I'm going to make my own stuff and nobody's going to say no to me. And, like, you know, I had a crazy synthesis of luck where, like, I, I got to do all these things that have, I, I couldn't even imagine that my life would be like this. I really couldn't. I look forward to seeing what you do and seeing how everything comes out. I, I especially look forward to the idea that one of my actual friends is writing Toy Story, and I can show it to my kids. You're like, that's, that's yeah. her. Yeah. So if you don't like it, it's because of her. Yeah. Thank you for coming and doing <laughs> this. Thank you. It was so fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Nice to see you. Let's do it more often, not on camera. Yeah, I'm so down with okay. more alcohol. Fine. Yeah. This was alcohol. <gasps> you just didn't drink it. <laughs> Hey folks, you've reached the end of another episode of Off Camera. I hope you're liking the show. And remember, if you want to get the full off-camera experience, go to offcamera.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Off Camera Show or me at Sam Jones. And if you want to get really personal, send me an email, Sam at offcamera.com. And if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, go to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, take a minute on iTunes and give us a rating. Anything above four stars is acceptable. See you next time, off camera.